Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Howdy. Thank you so much for downloading another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter and the founder of aggrad.com that connects students and young professionals to hiring agribusinesses. Now, many of you may not know this, but before I started aggrad and started in the agribusiness recruiting realm, I was a commodity trader. I'd spent eight years doing that, and I knew I wanted to go out on my own and utilize my experience trading commodities, but... I was pretty sure that starting my own commodity trading firm just wasn't the right move. So I started to brainstorm what are problems that exist in food and agriculture that I can help solve and that maybe my commodities background would become an asset to me to help solve those problems. And the one that came to the forefront was this problem of food waste. So I spent uh, my off time one summer with the help of a guy named Charlie Hoppy, who's in high school, but very, very bright individual, especially when it comes to business and research. He helped me kind of devise some strategies that we might start to attack this food waste problem. We came up with ideas that ranged from taking wild pigs that had been captured from farmland in central Texas, which is a big problem in itself, and feeding them out with food waste and selling the meat for pet food, uh, all the way to launching our own Black Soldier Fly larva operation. You heard a little bit about Black Soldier Fly in a previous episode with Robert Nathan Allen. We talked about insects as feed and food. But essentially what that is is taking a sort of fly larva, feeding them food waste because they eat it at an extremely alarmingly quick rate, and then selling the larva as animal feed. They're very, very high in both protein and fat. Almost like It's almost like turning food waste into a soybean. Uh, for those of you familiar with soybean oil crushing. Anyway, we became really fascinated by this problem, and I even uh, wrote the majority of a master's thesis on black soldier fly larvae and the economics involved in that. I've been transfixed by this problem of food waste for a long time, and, and, and what is sort of surprising is that in the last two years since we went on this endeavor to, to try to come up with solutions for food waste, very little progress has been made into making a dent. Right now, less than 3% of all the food wasted is being utilized in things like compost or black soldier fly or other methods. 97% of food waste is ending up in a landfill. And as you'll hear from our guest today, that involves 30 to 40% of all of the calories ever produced. So 30, 40, 30 to 40% of any food that we produce is going to end up, the majority of which, in a land. This is a problem on a multiple levels, and I'm going to let our guest today, Jonathan Bloom, talk more about it. He literally wrote the book on food waste. It's called America's Wasteland. I highly recommend it. I have finished it now since the interview, and it's, it's extremely interesting, and it will make you think about how can agriculture help solve this problem of food waste? Sure, we're all in this together. Consumers have to help. Agriculturalists have to help. But ag's always been extremely good at coming up with efficient ways to solve problems. And I think this is one that we will see ag solve in the future. So without further ado, here is my guest, Jonathan Bloom of WastedFood.com and the book America's Wasteland, as well as the documentary Just Eat It. (music) 
Jonathan Bloom, the author of American Wasteland and the blogger at wastedfood.com. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. I'm really excited about this. Food waste is a an issue uh, within agriculture, food and agriculture that I have been very interested in for a long time. I think it's one we're not talking about near enough, but maybe just to start off on a real basic level, Jonathan, why should we as consumers care about food waste? Well, we should care about food waste because it has three main consequences. It has economic, ethical, and environmental impacts. And uh, from a real basic level, when you think about the economics, it's about $200 billion, a bit more than $200 billion are squandered nationally. Closer to home, the average family of four is throwing away, oh, near $2,000 in food not eaten. So that waste certainly adds up. From an ethics standpoint, to have an abundance of food and to still have so many Americans who don't get enough to eat – uh, latest figures put it at about one in eight Americans are food insecure. Uh, to to have about twice the amount of food that we need per person on a calorie basis and then still have that level of food insecurity is, in my view, morally callous and something we need to change. And uh, then from an environmental standpoint, it's simply a poor use of resources. And anyone in the, the ag community knows that the inputs that go into producing our food are so expensive and dear and and at many points taxing on the environment. And so to pour all of the water and energy, fertilizer, pesticides, etc. into producing this food that we then squander at a pretty scary rate, to me that is a, a, being a poor steward of the earth. Absolutely. And I, I'm going to throw out a question at you that I'm sure you hate being asked, but it, it represents the mindset I had in, until here just the last couple of years as I explored this issue. Why should we care when food is biodegradable? Yeah, I get that a lot. Uh, you know, what's the big deal? It's, it's just going to decompose. Well, the real problem, uh, in addition to the resources that we've invested in that food that then are squandered when we waste the food, uh, when the food ends up in a landfill, it then emits methane. And so it's not necessarily each individual food item decomposing that is the problem, but it's the aggregation of all that food into one central location where it then rots without air. And that's what leads to the methane creation, which essentially aids climate change. Uh, and, and that methane in the atmosphere is a real warming agent. The number that's thrown around a lot is is up, up to like forty percent of the food is is wasted. Where along the value chain from from the farm to to the plate, where's that waste happening, or what's the breakdown there? Yeah, it's a, a really important question. So the best data we have points to consumers as the main culprits with food waste, and for sure that's a major part of the problem. But that data does not show the amount of ag-level waste because we really just don't have a great hold or handle on how much food is being wasted at the farm level. And essentially that is because it's difficult to get at that, that level of loss at the farm level. Uh, it's expensive and time-consuming to do that research. So you know the, the estimates would put 
ag level and consumer level waste as about equal. And and I always point to those as the two main areas of improvement. And uh, hopefully for the listeners, uh, they'll have a role in both those uh, those parts of the food chain, which is kind of exciting. Usually I'm just speaking to, to consumers who might be able to waste less food at home or in a restaurant, but not necessarily do so in the agricultural setting. Yeah. And where do we draw the line? Just curious between ag and consumers at, at, you know, the grocery store, the restaurant and the home, those are considered consumer and everything before that is ag. Yeah. Well, there's also a couple of other steps in there. Uh, there's sort of processing and manufacturing right? Yeah. and then uh, distribution and then retail. So yeah, essentially when the consumer gets hold of the food, either after the supermarket or in a a restaurant setting. That's when it becomes consumer. And is this a global issue or is this is this an American thing that we just waste so much food? Well, for sure, it's a global problem. Uh, the numbers internationally are, are about one third of the food produced on this planet is squandered. And um, when you look at the the shocking amount of hunger in the developing world, that issue becomes all the more dire. And, uh, and from a financial standpoint, there's a pretty staggering figure I've seen out there that uh, the amount of waste on an international scale amounts to about $2.6 trillion. So $2.6 trillion is is lost through the food wasted globally. That is unbelievable. And I, I heard, uh, I'm not sure if it was in your book or perhaps uh, on the documentary that you were a part of, but you in what was the documentary called? I'm sorry, forget. I'm oh forgetting. yeah, just eat it. Just eat so, it. That's right. Uh, really fun flick. It is. I I enjoyed it quite a bit. But you had mentioned enough food waste. Was it every day to fill the Rose Bowl? Yeah, that's like the opening to my book. And um, yeah, basically every day America wastes enough food to fill the Rose Bowl, that ninety thousand seat stadium in Southern California, and. Interestingly enough, when I was writing the book, uh, this is around 2009, the numbers were such that it was really close to being able to say we could fill it twice every day. Um, But since time has passed and population has increased, we can now say that with a decent amount of certainty that every day we're wasting enough food to fill two Rose Bowls. You you mentioned in the book that sometimes food is wasted at the farm level because they're just the price doesn't even make it worth harvesting. Where have you seen examples of that? I was that struck me. I was surprised to see that. Yeah, um, I've seen that mostly with sweet potatoes, and uh, where I live in North Carolina, that's one of the major field crops, and uh, a pretty inexpensive one at that. So depending on the price of harvest, it might not justify the expenditure of of time and and uh, labor to get out into the fields and pick those sweet potatoes. And occasionally you'll hear about walk-bys, which is uh, essentially that, that same thing of, of a field that's, that's not even worth harvesting. And, and so the grower just walks right on by. And uh, that's, that's a real issue when it comes to just how much is invested in that field from a natural resource standpoint. Uh, now, there are some instances where you're having some harvesting being done to donate that food, and that's through the practice of gleaning, and uh, that's that's something that happens a decent amount in North Carolina. But 
for most people in the ag community, um, they'll they'll guess that that's not going to be a tremendously efficient way of harvesting and uh, getting a bunch of volunteers out into the field to pick sweet potatoes is a feel-good story and does a fair amount of good, but it doesn't provide that systemic solution for excess food. There's this thought out there that if we give food away, that's just going to be wasted and end up in a landfill and we make somebody sick that we're going to be liable. And so that's why we can't do that. Is that true? No, that's a real urban myth. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. There's this federal shield law called the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act, and it was passed in 1996 to provide that peace of mind for people donating food. So anyone donating food that they deem to be in good shape, uh, they will be free from liability. And so they would not be held liable if they were to be sued for any kind of illness that resulted from donated food. And uh, the part that really bugs me about that is is that there has not been one such lawsuit, and I haven't heard of one at least. And in every place I go, I ask people if they've heard of it, and and uh, to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't been one lawsuit where someone's essentially turning around and biting the hand that's feeding them. So to me, it's a bit of a red herring and kind of distracts. Or, or maybe even is used as an excuse to avoid having to go through the, the tiny bit of effort that it would take to donate food. So you, you've been studying food waste for over a decade now, and you've never heard of one case where somebody was given food that was going to be thrown out and ended up getting sick and suing. That's correct. <laughs> and yeah. It's, uh, it's sort of like, I mean, if there was that example out there, like the, the McDonald's coffee too hot kind of thing, um, then I could understand where this confusion was coming from. But without any prime example or any example to point to, to me, it's really puzzling. Yeah, so it seems like so much of the reason we we don't utilize this food that ends up becoming waste is fear. And it sounds like that fear is, is based on uh, no real data that we know of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a completely unfounded fear. Another thing I found interesting was you have some information about sell-by dates or, or expiration dates on food. Talk to us a little bit about those. Yeah, that's that's a nice segue because that's another area where misinformation and maybe a, a bit of fear comes into play. Uh, so the dates that are stamped on food, they they do not speak to food safety. They only speak to a food's quality. But there's this misconception that they do focus on when something goes bad and the date stamped on food items they they all are when that producer or the manufacturer wants you to consume the food by so that it's at its peak quality so it's really about taste and texture more than food safety but we we do have this fear of of getting sick from what we eat um we have that that notion of avoiding being poisoned that's that's sort of hardwired in our brains from the days of hunting and gathering and it's it's quite hard to get past that and i know if if anyone's had a, an instance of of food poisoning uh, you know the memory stays fresh in your mind and so it it can impact how we act but what i'm saying is that 
food poisoning has nothing to do with the date stamped on the label. And uh, the other thing I should say is that there's just a, a whole variety of, of regulations on what has to be labeled and how it has to be labeled. And there's a variety of, of uh, local and state and then uh, a few national rules. But it, it, what we need is a bit more uniformity because there's so much confusion about what those terms actually mean. And so there's been some movement on that to, to try to streamline and to make uniform some of those date labels. Yeah, that's a regular conversation around my house is I generally think if it, if it doesn't smell bad, you're okay to probably eat it. And my wife is pretty, pretty strict on the, uh, on the date there. So, uh, I will make sure that she listens to this part of the interview because, uh, it's a, it's a regular conversation. And we even, you know, it's funny with, with even like apples, she'll say, well, we, we bought those apples two weeks ago. We can't eat them. And then I, I saw a, a TED talk that said that the average apple in the grocery store bit had, been picked like 11 months ago. <laughs> so I don't know if that's true, but, but, uh, it, it, it definitely alters your perception when you see those sell by date. Yeah, it sure does. It, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that about the, the, dis, the difference of opinion within the household, because I find that tends to be the case. There's, there's one person within every couple that, uh, doesn't necessarily follow those guidelines all that strictly and there's one who's the the squeamish one who's who's sort of throwing things out right on that date on the package exactly uh, yeah but what i'm here to say is that if you're throwing away food at midnight on the date stamped on the package then chances are you're throwing away perfectly good food and and the follow-on to that is that you know food can go bad well before that date it's it's not necessarily related to that date it's about how that food is handled and whether it's been stored properly whether it was kept at the right temperature for a good while or and whether it got into the refrigerator quickly enough or if it's something like sweet potatoes or potatoes if it's stored in a dark place uh, you know there's a whole bunch of of things we need to keep in mind with how we store food and we might not be as vigilant as we could be Right, I'm the the human uh, disposal at our house, but but uh, with with actual you know garbage disposals, if we put food down the you know incinerator there, does that end up in a landfill as well? No, that usually ends up in the wastewater treatment plant, and depending on where you live, it it might be converted to energy through anaerobic digestion. Um, it also might be just sort of treated as, as regular household waste. Uh, so by and large, that's a better solution than throwing food out. Uh, the only thing you have to watch out for there is, is whether or not the city or town's uh, pipes are equipped to, to handle that food waste and you know whether it's getting ground up fine enough so that it can safely travel through the pipe system. I'm an ag guy. I grew up. Uh, we we would get uh, bread from the bakery that they couldn't sell, and, and and then whey from a goat dairy, and we would make pig feed out of it. You know, slop, and we would feed our pigs. Uh, that was that was what I did growing up a lot. So, as I'm learning all this stuff about food waste, I'm thinking, why are we not feeding all of this to livestock? Can can you answer that? Yeah. Well, we are feeding some of it to livestock, and the the answer really is is about the scale of the problem. Um, you know, there are 
solutions in various places for excess food, but those, let's say, packing sheds, uh, I've, I've just been talking to a lot of fruit and vegetable folks out in California, the volume of fruits and vegetables that come in is so overwhelming that they can't find the suppliers or, or they can't find takers enough to to satisfy all of the culls that they have. And so, yes, yeah, sure, some of the fruit goes to cattle, some goes to hogs, but on that mass level, it's not really being used properly. And part of that is, is coming down to the, the major animal producers, the large-scale farms wanting to control their inputs and, and not really being as flexible or versatile with what goes into that slop. And, uh, you know, if you're, you're going to want to be vertically integrated and control the animal's diet really down to the last bite, then you're not going to be able to find a solution through wasted food. I know there's that the famous hog farm outside of Las Vegas, and it actually was on the documentary as well. Oh yeah. Is there any concern with people like that that are using food waste? And and boy, that slop looks <laughs> even for slop, it looks pretty nasty. Uh, is there any concern with as a livestock producer selling the 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 pork at the end of the you know at the end of the day in terms of the quality of the meat that's produced with using food waste? Well, I mean, I'm no expert on the quality of, of, you know, what that pork will taste like in at the end of that process. But I do know from a safety standpoint, as long as you're cooking that slop to the right temperature, you're going to kill all the pathogens. And so there isn't really a fear of that. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm guessing if you are, are feeding those hogs like acorns and berries and, you know, the things that they'd be eating out in the wild, uh, chances are it's going to taste a little better. Um, but in, in terms of comparing the hog taste or the, the, in terms of comparing what the hogs are, are eating in that slop versus their regular feed, uh, I think it's pretty comparable. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. And I, I think there's probably, uh, folks listening out there, we have a lot of aspiring agricultural entrepreneurs in this in this audience that are thinking, okay, I see why a massive company that's feeding, you know, hundreds of thousands of animals wants a standardized process. But somebody who's just trying to make a living for them and their family, it, it might be a great way to go and, and solve two problems at once. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, small tends to be more flexible, whether it's on the farm level or, or even on the restaurant scene where, um, you know, for example, if you're a major fast food chain, you're going to be hard pressed to, to really utilize some of that excess food that comes up here and there, but doesn't come in a steady supply. Um, whereas a small one-off restaurant, you know, the chef is changing the menu every day he or she can take advantage of you know them having let's say too much salmon and uh, and and that gets used up in a, a special that evening and you know there's a real history in restaurants of of using what you have and same thing on the farm level with with some of the more traditional farms as you mentioned but uh, as with so many problems these days when the scale increases as do the problems. Absolutely. And that, you know, small is great because of the adaptability. It's just limited because of the scale and the scale of this problem is just enormous. Uh, So 
you know, there are things like gleaning and composting. Uh, I had read, I think, from you that that like three percent of food waste ends up composted. Is that right? Yeah, the EPA puts out this hierarchy of uses for food waste, and you know, it's basically along the reduce, reuse, recycle lines. And you know, right at the bottom, it's if only if you can't reduce the amount of food waste being created or divert it to feed other people or divert it to feed animals or compost it or create energy out of it. Uh, only then should you be landfilling. But uh, about 97% of the available food waste in the U.S. ends up in a landfill or an incinerator. That's staggering. Is there any country you know of that's really making significant strides to reducing their food waste? Yeah, several of the European countries have made decent progress. And uh, in particular, in particular, Denmark comes to mind where the issue has really taken prominence. And uh, the country seems to have gotten behind the idea of reducing food waste. It also sort of fits in with a general mindset of conservation. And uh, in Germany as well, there's a lot more use of anaerobic digesters. And so there's a lot less going to landfill or incineration. But that uh, they, they do have one significant structural advantage in Europe, and, and it speaks to a disadvantage in the U.S., and that is there isn't much space to site landfills. And so they've had to tackle this problem earlier. They have a bit of a head start on those of us in North America. And so because we have so much land still, and and for sure it's getting more expensive, but by and large, when you look at what it costs to build a landfill or to throw out a ton of trash, it's it's not a problem and, and it's fairly inexpensive in America. Those anaerobic digesters, I don't know if you know this, but uh, do, how much do they reduce the – because there's got to be some residue at the end of the day. How much do they reduce the, the food waste? Well, I mean, anaerobic digesters process that food waste and, and basically in an in-vessel setting, they, they decompose that food waste. They allow bacteria to consume it and then harness the methane emissions to create energy – which can be used for several things, um, creating electricity or converting it to uh, natural gas. But um, at, at the end of that process, there is this inert product, the digestate, as they call it. And uh, I don't know exactly how much by a percentage basis it's reduced, but uh, it's, it's a pretty insignificant amount compared to what goes in. And that really speaks to just the amount of water that's in our food uh, in addition to everything. Right. Yeah. F- food waste is water waste. Is I mean, I, I had read at one point that food waste is something like 80% water. Um, yeah. I mean, it's wet and heavy and and ugly and smelly. And, and so, you know, the heaviness part is is some of the real – the heaviness part is, is one of the real issues there because – it's just expensive to ship it around to to send it to a landfill or even to an anaerobic digester. So uh, that sort of speaks to the need for for more local solutions. Uh, you know, if if there are hogs nearby that that could use that that excess food, that's great. Um, if there's 
more anaerobic digesters around so that you don't have to ship that food waste as far, that would certainly help. And in a lot of the conversations on where we go from here, people talk about improving the infrastructure, the food waste infrastructure or food recycling infrastructure. And part of that is more composting operations. But uh, one thing I'd, I'd love to see more of is anaerobic digesters. Yeah, it seems like it needs a, a cultural shift, um, you know, m- much like in some ways kind of the uh, l- the awareness of littering and, and, and how, you know, culturally it's such a faux pas now to litter anything. But food waste is still kind of thought, oh, well, it, you know, it's biodegradable, like we were talking about earlier. How does that how does that cultural shift happen? I, obviously, the work you're doing and trying to get the message out on on um, documentaries and books and podcasts like this and ev- everything that you're doing. But how else can we inspire sort of a cultural change to realize that, hey, people worked hard and a lot of resources were dedicated into producing that food. We need to utilize it in the best way possible. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you you tied in the littering issue because that is another ill that we have almost conquered as a culture in a country. And how that happened there was through a concerted campaign to really stamp out littering. And and so you had the littering, uh, you had littering campaigns in most towns. You had the litter bug campaign, which really caught on and captured public attention. Uh, how we do that with food waste. I think we can echo that kind of campaign-based solution. There's something called Save the Food, which is this ad campaign and uh, initiative that's that's just launched in the last year or so. And that's um, a pretty clever ad campaign, the public service announcements, uh, similar to Smokey the Bear and Woodsy the Owl, Friends Don't Let Friends Drive Drunk, those kind of things. So hopefully that will make a bit of a dent in the national consciousness, and you might see that in a TV or print ad near you one of these days. But I think a more lasting solution will come from targeting kids and reaching out to young folks and getting them to see this as a problem. I think getting the issue into schools is a nice way to do that, Uh, a good way to save money as well for school districts and individual schools to to get them to stop throwing away as much food and wasting as much food in the cafeteria uh, so it's it's a bit of a two birds one stone situation where you'll minimize the amount of food waste being created but also increase the awareness for the issue with young folks and um, at the same time connecting kids to their food is so important and, and I'm sure many of your listeners will relate to that, the idea that, that we have become so disconnected, most Americans have, have become so disconnected from where their food comes from and what goes into producing it that they just aren't very careful with it. And if that were reversed, if we really thought about and knew how much went into producing our meals, I think that we would do a lot better when it comes to treating it with the care and respect it deserves. That's a great point. And, and it, it made me think we we talk a lot in the ag circles about how can we get people to respect the ag industry. And, and really, maybe we're looking at that the wrong way. Maybe we first need to get them to respect their food. Uh, and, and then if they really respect their food, they will naturally respect you know how the food got there. And I think that's 
Um, that's a great point in a way I didn't really think about how really we're on the same side here. We're trying to get people to respect food uh, in, in a lot of different ways so that they understand um the the value of it so that they understand the process that went into it and so that they understand how many resources it requires to keep that food on that grocery store or, or you know on their on their dinner plate so i think that's a really interesting perspective are you known in your peer group like when you go out with friends are like oh we better finish our plates because jonathan's around oh man if i had a dime for every time i heard that <laughs> i'd be retired right now now yeah i definitely get that and and i have that reputation uh, i come by it honestly uh, but the funny thing is i probably had that reputation before all of this started uh, I, I definitely grew up that way as as a person who was always taking home leftovers and and having that kind of leftover night where you finish everything but uh but yeah since writing the book and moving into this way of life it's it's really kicked it up a few notches and this is what you do full time, right? The 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 blog, you know, the the speaking engagements, etc. Yeah, yeah. I've I've started out this project as a journalist and uh, finished the book as more of a thought leader or subject matter expert. Uh, but yeah, whatever term people throw around, I'm I'm comfortable with anything. But basically, uh, I am now a full time food waste warrior. What's what's something that most people would turn their nose up or throw away that, that you don't mind eating at all? Oh, well, there's a pretty long list, but um, <laughs> the thing that comes to mind, a real pet peeve of mine is when people sort of create these notions for inedible parts of foods that don't need to exist. Like I've heard, uh, I've heard people talk about the, the cucumber butt or the banana butt, like these, basically the place where the fruit or vegetable connects with the plant and you know you might see a tiny bit of that vine still intact or maybe just the connection point um i've seen that just recently with some radishes uh, you know i sliced them up and and served a few to my kids i have two boys eight and four and uh, you know they they turned their noses up at, at those particular pieces and it's like a little ongoing battle. But, uh, but that's something that, that I see time and time again. And, you know, it doesn't add up to much at the household level, but when that kind of notion is mechanized and systemized and you have a, a major producer of an item that's lopping off maybe a fourth or an eighth of each product. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a problem. Yeah. Especially when it comes to things like beer, you know, people leaving beer, little beer on the table. That should be your next campaign is, is, you know, anyone who doesn't finish their beer, right. All the work that went into that. I haven't heard too much of that, but that would not sit well with me. <laughs> uh, uh, well, this is great. I, I actually have a whole long list of questions still to ask you, but I know I, I'm running down the clock on time. So let me start with this one and, and we'll kind of get the start the process of wrapping this up. In the time that you've been doing this, have you seen any real change in, in general behavior or, or what changes have you seen? I've seen a lot more awareness on the issue. And there's been a real increase in the last two years or so, especially at the policy level, where you've had 
things like the EPA and USDA putting out a national goal for food waste reduction. Um, in September 2015, they announced that they were setting this 50% reduction goal for 2030. So, um, you know, things like that, and there's a, a real confluence of interests on the issue with things like Refed, which is this uh, conglomerate of various interests that got together and, and put together a really nice report. Um, that's that's something that's really encouraging. Uh, the issue has has really found itself or found its way into some some uh, well healed locations like the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, they they have gotten on to the issue with this Champions twelve point three report that they've put out. 12.3 referring to UN Sustainable Development Goal 12.3, which is basically the same thing as the USDA EPA thing with, with uh, setting a 50% reduction goal. But um, the Rockefeller Foundation as well, they're, they're invested in the issue. And uh, so there's, there's just a lot of excitement and momentum at that uh, national level, at the policy level. Now, whether or not that translates into action, that remains to be seen. But um, where I have seen a whole bunch of, of change is at the grassroots level, where there are actually a bunch of entrepreneurs who are really tackling this issue in, in ways large and small, mostly small. And, and I say that with a lot of admiration. Um, people like Imperfect Produce, who are are finding a home and a niche for the fruits and vegetables that don't look just right. Uh, there's a, a juice company called Misfit, which is doing the same and uh, and creating a really cool product and building awareness for the issue of wasted food. At the same time, they're they're selling something useful and delicious. And so, yeah, it's it's products like that and and entrepreneurs like that who are driving a lot of the the real excitement. And so, yeah, I think in the next two, three, five years, I think you're going to see a real confluence of excitement and capital. And and where that ends, who knows? But it, it's going to be exciting to find out. Great. Yeah, you're actually the, the third guest we've had on the podcast that has at least touched on food waste. The first one was uh, in talking about black soldier fly larvae and using black, black soldier fly larvae to convert, con, uh, convert food waste into animal feed. And then just a couple weeks ago, Tania Pina of uh, a company called Renewable in New York City that's actually creating a, a fertilizer for hydroponics growers uh, through through some organic food waste. So it, oh, yeah. there are some exciting uh, ideas out there. Maybe if you could for us, since we're all consumers, everyone listening consumes food, obviously – what are maybe uh, uh, just some handful of really practical things you would like to see people start to do on on a consumer level? Yeah, well, it, it's so important, as you said, we're all part of this problem, but can be a major part of the solution. So, simply becoming a smarter shopper and not just buying food as you see it in the store, uh, as you as you think it might look good, but really planning out what you need and being a bit more disciplined, and you know that that sounds kind of boring and and uh, naggy, but I would say if you 
really factored in how much money you're throwing away through the food that you don't use, then that would probably change some of your behaviors. So uh, just taking stock of how much food you are throwing away or, or composting or feeding to your livestock, uh, just maybe adding that up and being more aware of the issue that will change how you shop. And, you know, we'll, we'll all be able to create our individual solutions on, on how we bring food into our home. But, but being a bit wiser on shopping is very important. Uh, thinking about portion size a bit more is another key one. And that comes into play not just with how much food we waste, but potentially overeating and, you know, gets into the obesity crisis on a national level. So we could all probably stand to rethink uh, just exactly how much we're serving and, you know, making it easy for people to take seconds if they're still hungry. Um, I'd love to see a bit more attention on using your freezer as a resource. You know, if, if you have foods in the refrigerator that are uh, not long for this world, that are close to going bad, the freezer is a great way to avoid food waste. Uh, hopefully, it's not just a way to delay that waste because, you know, food will not last forever in there. But um, if used properly, it's it's a nice safety valve. And um, as you touched on before, ignoring expiration dates or or treating them uh, not, not as the be-all, end-all, but as an indicator or a guide and instead trusting your sense of smell, of taste, and, uh, and maybe even of sight. You know, I think that, that we all have these instincts that, that we don't use too much, but um, we'll, we'll tend to know when things are good or not. If anyone isn't sure if they've smelled bad milk, that means they haven't. That's right. Gr- growing up and putting whey in, in expired bread, I, I know exactly what bad milk <laughs> smells like. Yeah. And you'll yeah. smell it. If it doesn't smell bad to you, it, it's probably not bad, right? Yeah, it's an unmistakable odor. I'm Definitely. Sure you've experienced that. Well, I won't ask you to call out the biggest offenders here, but I'm curious, are there any products, food products, that are just known for wasting very little? Uh, and I don't know if I'm asking that question right, but is there anything we can buy you know, a certain commodity group we can support knowing that we're actually contributing food waste because this product is, is just not wasted, generally speaking. The real answers are, are sort of require knowing where that food product came from. Uh, I, I tend to think of the local producers who are being really resourceful by, oh, I don't know, maybe feeding their livestock with excess, uh, with slop or scraps that, that otherwise wouldn't be used. But um, one thing that, that does come to mind and is kind of a fun one is the uh, notion of baby carrots. And uh, those are you're basically the, the ugly, gnarled carrots that, that wouldn't quite sell on their own but are lathed down to that uh, bullet shape that are so ubiquitous in uh, our supermarkets and, and often our kids' plates. And uh, to me, that's, that's kind of a neat way to, to take something that is looking imperfect, is, is maybe subpar in some people's minds, and then convert it into something that's desired and, uh, and creating a market for it. Uh, the other example that comes to mind there is uh, just sort of finding other products that, 
that would not otherwise be used. Uh, there was something that came out a couple years back called Broccoleaf, and that was, I believe, Foxy Produce, who found that they, they had all these broccoli leaves, and they weren't being used. And so it was sort of a matter of creating a market for it. And they figured out that a lot of people were buying kale to juice it, to put it in their juicer. And, and you know, broccoli being in the same type of food family, they found that that would be a nice substitute. So voila, you have this, this product now that, and it's, it's another market for that company. But um, it's something that was trash or was just plowed under and now is being sold. And so it's things like that, uh, whether it's it's in name like broccoli where it's this whole separate product or maybe even something like uh, broccoli slaw or, or finely sliced broccoli stalks, uh, whereas before that there wasn't a market for that. Uh, now we, we have one. I love that ag ingenuity and, and entrepreneurialism. Jonathan, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I know I got a, a lot out of it and I'm still uh, working on your book. I'm going to finish your book. It's really, really interesting stuff. And uh, I think this is a problem that agriculture will help solve in the future. You know, just like agriculture exists to solve the problems of, of food, shelter, and clothing, uh, we can solve the sustainability problems as well. And, and, and so I'd love to uh, have you back on the podcast on a future date and if you're ever in austin let's let's get together and i promise to finish my food i'll hold you to that tim <laughs> all right That's and great. and you're also active on twitter right what's your twitter handle yeah it's at wasted food that's on twitter and instagram and uh yeah thank you so much for having me it's been a really nice chat hope to catch up with you in austin and uh make sure there's no food or beer left on the table absolutely thanks again jonathan all right thanks tim Thank you so much to Jonathan Bloom for being on the podcast. I love to get perspectives like that from people who are not necessarily your traditional ag people, but are solving real ag problems. And I think we'll see more of that here on this podcast. I hope you enjoy that as much as I do. If you have ideas specifically about food waste, I would love to hear them on Twitter. Please tweet me at Tim Hammerich. Some of you may not know that at AgGrad, we have launched what we're calling the Ultimate Ag Internship this summer, which is going to be one to two interns hired by AgGrad to go on a road trip to participating agribusinesses. They're going to learn about the opportunities that those agribusinesses have for careers and internships, as well as just what the company does and the type of customers that they serve. If you're interested in either being an agribusiness participant or perhaps an intern on this journey, please let me know. Uh, you can send me a tweet or you can go to aggrad.com forward slash ultimate ag internship. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com, that's A-G-G-R-A-D.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.